Welcome to Music and the Church with Sarah Bariza, a monthly podcast about thinking bigger in our faith, our ministries, and our churches. I'm Dr. Sarah Bariza, a writer and musician, and I am so glad to be back after a summer on break. Although it wasn't really a summer break, it was more a summer of writing and editing. I have a new book coming out next spring, Professional Christian, Being Fully Yourself in the Spotlight of Public Ministry. And I did a lot of work on that this summer, so I had to take a break from podcasting to make sure I could uh, make that book as good as it could be. So that's coming in the spring. And coming today is an interview with the editors of a new book, Ethics and Christian Musicking. And the editors are Nathan Myrick and Mark Porter. This is an edited collection, and there are 14 different essays, all, all by 14 different authors, that take this question of ethics and think about their particular area, the author's particular area of research, and think about, well, what does it mean to have ethics of body, ethics of everyday sound, black gospel, worship music, um, and evangelicalism, wild goose festival. There's, a, I think, a monastery, Beyonce mass. I wrote an essay on fundamentalist Christian vocal music. Really nice range of things. And Mark and Nate today are going to tell us less about the specific essays and more about this whole question of ethics and music and Christian music making. Little bit about the authors. Dr. Nathan Myrick is a professor at Mercer University in Macon, Georgia. He holds his doctorate from Baylor University, and he is the author of Music for Others, Care, Justice, and Relational Ethics in Christian Music. Dr. Mark Porter has published two different books, uh, Contemporary Worship and Everyday Musical Lives, and Ecologies of Resonance in Christian Musicking, and his doctorate is from City University, London. He is also the founder and program chair of one of my very favorite conferences of all time, Christian Congregational Music, Local and Global Perspectives. It's a biennial conference, and uh, the four, the fifth one, I think, actually happened this summer. It's a wonderful conference. So that's Nate and Mark, and uh, let's talk about ethics and Christian musicking. Why, why did the two of us end up writing a book up, do, doing this stuff about music and ethics, right? I mean, I got into doing it precisely because... I'd been part of different communities in different ways for a certain number of years. I'd have my own experiences, some more positive, some less positive, talked to people around me about their experiences and found there were people who, who seemed to be struggling in some way with, with what was going on musically in those communities and where, where, where those struggles it seemed to me so easily to connect with with issues of justice, with issues of ethics, with questions of what, why are we doing this to these people week by week? Why, 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 um, why does our music do this to people? And why do we just keep on doing it without making space for space for that? And so having done that, begun researching, writing about it, because it felt like like people needed it, not because I had some desire for new academic frameworks about ethics, because I had just a feeling that some of our communities don't have the tools yet that, that would be helpful to, um, to address what's going on. And I don't know, I mean, Nate, is your, is your experience coming into this, did you have a similar, a different kind of 
No, it's, I mean, it's definitely similar. It's definitely having a, just a range of experiences with, you know, talking to music ministers or worship leaders around the country, around the world even, and just ha- hearing the same kinds of stories over and over again, these kind of stories of feeling abused or taken advantage of and really struggling with this idea of, well, am I just manipulating my congregation into giving more money to this particular ministry? Or am I emotionally manipulating or abusing these people by, you know, expecting these kinds of emotional arcs and uh, reactions every Sunday? Um, or just the the sort of high level tension that goes into, you know, being charged with a certain kind of leadership responsibility in a congregation, but then having to navigate between, say, you know, these these oversight boards that in a way just mirrors it mirrors corporate American capitalistic structures, right? You've got the, you know, the diocese, or you've got the board of elders, or you've got the denomination, or you've got whatever it is that has this oversight and really has a very strong authoritarian sort of structure. Um, it, but there's also this middle point. I mean, in a sense, it's it's kind of like being caught in middle management, I guess. And mm-hmm. so similar yeah. to Mark, yeah. Uh, so yeah, Sarah, Sarah can speak to that. Uh, it's like, oh, I've I've never had a job like that. No, no, never. Oh, no, never, not one. <laughs> uh, but similar to Mark, it, the, I mean, my my move into ethics and music was just again trying to find something or to resource people with. Here, here's like, let's help. Like, this is something people actually are dealing with and struggling with, and this could could help them or, you know, resource communities, as Mark said. And so it's definitely not the idea of let's come up with an academic theory, although that that is part and parcel to it. But it was born out of a desire just to help make a difference in with people's lives. <laughs> and it, it seems also to interact intersect with both of y'all's um, books that have been re- recently published. Um, I'm thinking of, of how you describe music in everyday life. Um, I guess that's not recent, so that's 2016. Um, and in uh, Nate, your book, Music and How Care Plays Out in That. Mm-hmm. Those are both angles on this ethical and why ethical. I mean, yeah, of course, that that was part of the original way in. I'd thought about ethics and put some frameworks together. Nate had done something similar. And I think certainly my feeling after having done that was that, okay, um, it doesn't really work for me just to come up with my own ethical lens here. When we're thinking about ethics, really, we, we do need a, a conversation, different voices coming from different perspectives to make that conversation work and for that to be, uh, to do what ethics should do. And, and so part of bringing together an edited collection for me was to, to try and assemble some of that, that choir of voices that can, uh, begin to do something here that that the voice of one person alone just never really can do adequately. Absolutely. Or, or yeah, I mean that that I mean it's always a danger with the monograph, right? This feeling of imposing one's own narrative on everything. And yeah. I mean, that's a very ethical question as well in, in writing, right? How do I tell a story and how, how much power do I have as, a, as an author? And I think... Yeah, because I mean, it's my story, but at the same time, it, like the way I'm telling it might not be helpful <laughs> or even true, right? Uh, but yeah, and, and like the the ethics in Christian music and collection, I mean, it, it, where, where did it come from? It came from Mark sending me an email saying, hey, 
<laughs> what do you think about doing it in a collection for the Congregational Music Studies series? You know, and I was like, that sounds like a great idea. Yes, we should do that. You know, and that, that it's kind of that simple. I think we should start with the question of why people haven't thought about music through the lens of ethics, right? Why, why wouldn't you do that? Um, I mean, we, we apply ethics to so many areas of our lives and it's such a normal thing to do in so many situations. And so, so why don't we do this so easily, so naturally? To music or to music yeah. in Christian communities. And it, and it seems like within Christian communities, of course, there are ethical considerations and have been for centuries. So why not in academia? Well, I think that it's, I mean, the answer, like one way of answering that question is actually kind of getting at some of the other questions that we're also going to be talking about here. And that is the, this, this very uh, profound conceptual shift that's taking place within academic and especially theological thought moving out of the I mean, I want to call it an ancient way of thinking, and it's, and it's not an ancient way of thinking, but it's moving past the sort of enlightenment uh, singularity uh, way of thinking and maybe into something more intersectional or more multifaceted. And I think, um, like, not to pick on Harold Best, right, but, but the music through the eyes of faith Best makes that claim in the middle of it that you just, like, music cannot be ethical, and as soon as you give it moral weight, then it becomes an idol. And I think that 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 way of thinking is is kind of well, it's bound by a schema, like a concept of the world that says that one thing can only be one thing; it can't also be other things, and it can't have other functions. And it also is just assuming that music is a thing, right? That it actually is a positive object or entity somewhere in the the forms or something along those lines. And it's just, it's a, it's a very enlightenment way of thinking about it, but it doesn't pay any attention to the fact that people actually use music in these ethical kinds of ways and make ethical evaluations based around music and based around the way that they, you know, like music and styles. Now, best is, I mean, to be fair and charitable, I'm sure he's writing this from the perspective of, you know, stop using musical style as a weapon, you know, like end these worship wars. It, I mean, like there's no musical style or there's no musical community that's more ethical than another, you know, like just please stop idolizing it. So from that perspective, yes, I can kind of affirm his his thesis, but the rest of it is so deeply troubling because it shuts down the idea that music could actually do moral things when we perform it, or rather it could uh, invoke the kinds of thoughts and processes or orientations and convictions in people based on the way that they do music or the way they make music or the way that they listen. So it seems like it's somewhat about treating music as like what sometimes in musicological circles, we joke around and say the music itself, because there's no, the music itself, but just like this, the sounds that we hear. And it sounds like maybe in, in best's reading music is this like self-contained music itself, but that's not how we ever, ever experience music. Right. And th- this question of experience, that, that is key. So if you uh, think about the role of music in your life, I think when most people think about music, they think about the way they, uh, it makes them feel, the way they use it to socialize, the way it helps them through certain times, the way there's certain kinds of music that they sort of feel pushed away by certain kinds of music they think oh this is for for this kind of person for that kind of person and music is um when you reflect on your experience it's immediately bound up with a hundred different um things which which have an ethical dimension to them and these aren't some kind of extra to 
to music as as a thing. These are part of the core function of what music is, as it is a part of human community, as it is a part of human lives, as we decide to make it in the first place, um, as we use it. Um, and I mean, we we I mean, we talk about in the introduction that there are long traditions of Christian thought that that say music has some kind of moral dimension to it, right? They often these sort of, oh, there's certain kinds of evil music that can do this to you, or at least, um, I mean, that they're not so, so extreme, but in, in the early church, you get a feeling there's certain kinds of music which can make you feel certain things and lead you in a direction that they don't want you to be led in. And there's been a certain way of connecting music and ethics that, that was already there. And I mean, part of our argument is to say, um, okay, that, that was one way of thinking about music and ethics, and it was already there somewhere, but the way music has evolved within our communities, that way of thinking about music and ethics doesn't really work in quite the same way anymore. And that's perhaps one of the reasons why we've discarded that kind of mode of thinking about music and ethics in churches. Um, so we probably need a new mode of thinking about it, which does justice to the contemporary socio-cultural condition, the to, to the thing that music has become in the contemporary world. Um, and like you, like you said, one of the key words we use to, or at least I use to define that, is that this idea of cosmopolitanism. I don't know how, how much Nathan buys into this, um, but we're, we're talking about the, these communities which are full of diverse people who have diverse lives, with, who experience encounter music in a vast variety of ways, because they're networked with a whole variety of different groups and not just one kind of monolithic community. And, and that complicates the way the ethics of music uh, functions. Its, its meaning is not clear or monolithic in the same way it might have been if you had a shared community of meaning and therefore the ethical, com um, the ethical dimension of it also becomes something a bit different and something where different kinds of concerns come to the foreground than might have done so at in other situations. I mean it's no so I actually do agree with Mark on that. I think that I think that the cosmopolitan idea for thinking about music and ethics is actually a much better way of doing it than uh, what we have been doing. And I think that you know if if Mark is referencing that one little uh, footnote in music for others, where I said, I, I said like, yeah, this, this checks out, but it wasn't what I was encountering or experiencing during my field work. I think in many ways, uh, the world is far more cosmopolitan than maybe we want to imagine it. And in terms of uh, a meta framework that it, so much so that if you're looking at a context or a certain community, they might not be exhibiting the characteristics of cosmopolitanism as Mark was just describing them, but the fact that other places do in different kinds of ways and that this particular community exhibits a different kind of characteristic, whatever that may be, actually is better evidence for a more of a broad, far-reaching cosmopolitanism, a globalism, a fractured global scape kind of idea uh, than we will usually be comfortable saying. So I do actually agree with Mark. I do think that that's, that's, a, that's a nicer way to conceive of the world. I think we should work towards that. Um, we could also call it intersectional thinking. We could call it a bunch of other things as well. But the idea is holding multiple potential uh, ontologies together at the same time without trying to, to reduce, without throwing Occam's razor willy-nilly around into 
you know, chopping things off and like, no, just this, no, just this, no, just this. And it's like, well, that's not, that's, that doesn't check out. That doesn't line up with reality. So, so I think, yeah, cosmopolitanism is a great idea. I'm curious what you all think, given what is it? I think 14 chapters in the book and they cover such a range of places in the world. And I feel like some of them, some of the people that these essays are about understand a little bit of that cosmopolitanism cosmopolitanism, and understand that there are different viewpoints. And some of them in their world, I mean, I, I wrote a chapter on fund, fundamentalist Christian music, like what is, is. And yes, they're now living in the internet age and things are rapidly changing. But like at the core, it's a one way is right and one way is wrong type of thinking. And it's very diff- difficult to think of intersectionality or even just a multifaceted approach to things. So I'm, I'm curious how you see that. Like here's an academic lens versus lived experience that um, that are covered in many of the essays. I mean, so what what is cosmopolitanism going to mean in that kind of community? I think it's going to mean a couple of things. Well, one thing is the ethics, the musical ethics of that community, whatever they are, they're going to come into encounter with a range of others. They, I mean, fundamentalism is is fundamentally there as a reaction against other ways of doing things, right? And it, it's a return to something that they've seen being being pushed out somewhere else. And, and so the, there's already that, that element of encounter. And then within the community, I think that however they handle it, they have, they're inevitably going to have the question, okay, we're, as a community, we maybe have one ideology, one way of thinking about things, but, but the members that come here, they come from all kinds of different roots. They, don't, they didn't all grow up like this. They didn't only ever know one way of thinking. And so how do we as a community uh, respond to that? And so the response may be, okay, we try to push that dimension out. We try to, um, and, and then the question of the ethics of that is an interesting one, right? Within the values of the community, one approach may work. If we have a sort of meta lens of cosmopolitanism, then perhaps we might say that that approach is ultimately inadequate. And that would be a competition of narratives, which narrative do you ultimately believe is is, is the one that is valid? Um, and then again, I would say that that very competition is part of these cosmopolitan dynamics. Right. So if we're thinking about We've said, I've said the music itself and in my musicological background, often music is the number one question, the sound that we hear people making the music and people are not necessarily as important in that academic frame. And in the way I'm reading, what y'all are arguing is that bringing in a question of ethics and an ethical frame to things recenters humans and the people who are making music, the people who are uh, experiencing music. And I'm curious how that how that sounds for you. So first of all, this whole idea of the music itself is kind of I mean, Sarah, you've been alluding to this, but it's ludicrous, right? The music itself oh, absolutely. doesn't exist. Yeah. Like, there is no music itself. Music is a contingent occurrence or phenomenon. It's not even like if we say it's a thing, we're maybe giving it too much credit. Um, it, it's it's contingent, right? It's made by something else. 
and that has impacts, right? It has influence and so on down the line. So the I mean, can we say it's an activity? Yeah, we could absolutely say it's an activity. What a weird idea. Um, but it's an activity that does lots of things, right? Uh, so this idea of recentering human, I think, is just fundamental, pardon the pun, to uh, to doing musicological research. It has to be about humans, right? We have to understand that what we're talking about when we're talking about music is something that's made by humans. Um, so that's a big part of it. But it, but there's also a decenter. Um, there's a, there's an interesting kind of dynamic at play there. One of the chapters in the book um, is Marcel Cabusin's chapter, which really does decenter humans in the sound, the musical, and the ethics of these things. And it's a it's actually a, a, a strangely theological piece that that really does invoke this idea of divine agency, even as much as it sort of preserves the mystery of what that might be. I was going to say also the agency of the natural world and the, the non-human, yeah. not just the divine, right? Right, right. And that's part, I mean, part of the move that uh, Kobusen does, at least as I read it, and again, I submit to not being the expert on what Marcel was writing here, but is, is that somehow in the natural world you do encounter some sort of divine agency or divine sound, whether, that, whether that's the reserved other holy other or whether that's something a lot more processional or or even uh, pantheistic or panentheistic essay is called the silence of the monks the ethics of everyday sounds and he he uses um uh the documentary uh mark what's the german title of that documentary oh i don't know i, I just remember it wasn't it called integrate silence there you in, go in what the english that? translation <laughs> okay yeah integrate silence uh die große stille there. Sorry, I had to find it, but it's just like the great silence, right? Um, and it's a it's a very very interesting uh, documentary about the Carthusian monks in in the Grand the Grand Chartreuse Monastery and their vow of silence and the the sounds that are made not like the non human sounds that are made are really the focal point of the soundtrack or the audio of that film. And, and Marcel Capucin takes that and like really thinks through it, works through it, theorizes through it in a way that's, I think, very, very generative. Um, I mean, I think particularly generative in the current moment, right? We're, yeah. When we're thinking about climate change, our relationship with the environment, and then that question of in our rituals, how do we shape our rituals um, so the particular things or particular interactions, particular agents are at the center or at the margins. Um, and so, I mean, you're right. In, in the book, part of our argument is when we're talking about music, we often fail to talk about the humans and the interactions around humans, and we need to re recenter those. But, it, I mean, this chapter is pushing a step beyond that to say, okay, once we've recentered the humans, perhaps we also need to go further than just the, the humans into into the rest of the world and to to say okay in our uh in our rituals that there's an ethical dimension of how is what i am doing shaping my relation with the these other things around me um mm -hmm. these other non-human things be that an element of nature a space um the divine um, whichever direction that ends up pointing in. And I think this this key thing in music is something relational, something that uh, when you're producing musical sound, you're, 
you're producing something that spreads out, that bounces off things, which, uh, which other things interact with, that may voice a response to, may sing in concert with. Um, and I think that, I mean, that's part of the core of a lot of Christian musical activity, right? The way that music is, is doing that in interaction yeah, and like that that whole and then Mark, I know this is your new project. Uh, the the whole music and ecology uh, or the environment is is such a, such a critical move here. And and these, you know we were talking about recentering humans, uh, decentering the music, quote unquote. Um, and and then the, this move towards well, you, after you recenter humans, you decenter them again, but in a in a different kind of way, right? Um, but at the same time, we're talking about ethics. And part of ethics is agency. A big part of it is is agency. And who actually has the agency or what is agentive in that moment or in the space or in this context. And so even as we decenter humans as the object or as the telos of ethical reflection, moving thinking towards ecology or the environment or something like that, we still have to we still are keeping humans as the agentive center of this, right? We're still thinking about what humans are doing via music in regard to ecology or the environment or nature or, you know, these kinds of things. So what really, I mean, really decentering music. And again, like this is scare quotes for, you know, listeners, music or just the sound itself or the music itself is opening up space for us to have these other kinds of conversations. Whereas we, we would have previously said, at least musicologists such as myself would have previously said that this couldn't happen, that, that music Music is just music, and as soon as you do anything else with it, it becomes bad, you know, or then it becomes right. an idol, it, or... or that its ethical dimension consists primarily in its beauty, right? Beauty is right. goodness, and goodness makes you a good person, kind of. Right, exactly. The sort of the sort of simplistic syllogism. One thing that you guys write about, uh, I'm going to quote you: uh, "To consider the ethical implications of particular activities means not to just describe them as they are, but to continue." but to consider how they should be. And since we have a have listeners who are researchers of church music and listeners who are people who make music in churches, I'm curious how you think this ethical framework and this music as it should be, how you think that this should play out for them or how it could play out for them? What are the implications? It's a hard question. I mean, I don't think we as, as editors are in a position to to impose any kind of ethical framework necessarily. I mean, we, we've, we've both developed sort of ethical lenses in our own writings and said, this is one way of thinking about the ethics of a community, or this is another way. Um, ethics is fundamentally, it's about values. What are the values? It's about humans, about what they're experiencing. It's about what does justice to those humans to or to their relationships. It's uh, Nathan DeVert's idea, it's about care. The, there are so many questions we can ask about it when, when these kinds of words, these kinds of categories interact. And I think more than anything, we want to push people to pay attention to these, the, yeah. these experiences, these categories, and to say, ask these questions of the communities you're, you're researching, find out how these dimensions are playing out, find out where the where there is suffering where there are things that aren't working where there's people who where there seems to be they're not being done justice to and see i mean the other way around see 
pay attention to it, look for it, and yeah, then do I, something. <laughs> yeah, and then do something. And and like I kind of want to you know um, unpack that the phrase that you picked up on, Sarah. Because on the one hand, you know, you said it, it means not just to describe, but it also is to describe. Because part of the the dilemma that we have for, as researchers is that a number of key texts in the canon of music and ethics, musicological consideration about these things, don't really describe music as it is. They're describing something else, or they're describing, you know, a, an internally cohesive philosophy of music, right? But it, but it's, it's not necessarily what is, and that's tricky. So if you're going to make any sort of evaluations about what something should be, you do have to have a pretty good sense of what it is. Otherwise, it isn't going to be effective to describe or prescribe anything. Now, the next part of that, in that should be part, is this tricky bit about theology, right? Because so many Christian communities believe that the music should be in alignment with their theology. And there is a sense in which that is absolutely true. That, you know, to be healthy, to be just and caring to that community, that the music should be in agreement or alignment with the theology of that community, right? Um, but then you have to stop there. You can't continue to make that a universal claim to say that this music has to be this way all the time theologically, that, that, that this is the good music or that this is the good theology music, unless you are also considering it as its ethics. And then that means looking at the results, which I mean, I don't want to be too simplistic about it, but it, you have to like sometimes the proof really is in the pudding. Like, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, you just have to like, is this community creating or producing good fruit? Is the music doing that? Is it making people thrive? Are people living good lives? Are they living abundant lives? You know, within the limits of their capabilities, are they doing this? And is the music facilitating it? Well, then that's you the can, question yeah, that, for practitioners. Exactly, yeah. that's the practitioner's question. You know, mm -hmm. and, and yeah. so, am I am I bringing flourishing in? Yeah, is this helping and researchers people? have to be aware of that. Like, as researchers, we have to we can't just check out of the practitioner mindset, or at least we can't ignore it. Because that's actually where the evidence is. <laughs> well, it's it seems like, like going back to what Mark said, what you're arguing is that, guys, this should be something that you consider, especially if you are um, if you're working with people today and you have the ability to consider this. Um, you should be considering this. This should be a factor in like does does this music care for people? Does it help people? Does it bring good? And that should right. be part of what we think about. Yeah, and that, there are lots of theological and pastoral strategies for avoiding that, right? Um, yeah. Because pe either people are scared of asking those questions different ways. I mean, they, they can be really scary questions. When you start asking these questions, then often you're asking, okay, is that a musical model that we've bought into and invested tr so much into, is it is it really good? Might we have to rethink some of this? And those are scary questions for communities to ask, uh, particularly successful communities. Yeah, because once you have a model that works or works numerically to a certain standard, it's really it's dangerous in a whole bunch of ways to challenge that or to question it. And, and that's I mean, that's where ethics comes in. Right. That's why that's why the should be is very important, even if it's contingent and tricky. Hey, we're people. We can do tricky stuff. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks to Nate Myrick and Mark Porter for this conversation. You can find show notes and other resources for musicians and church staff 
at musicandthechurch.com. If you've enjoyed this show, please share it with your colleagues. The best way for them to find it is by word of mouth. I'll be back next month with another episode of Music and the Church with Sarah Bariza.